You're listening to Kindling Conversation with Siobhan Hunt, part of Kindling Kids Radio. Okay, sing me something. Their mother sang a lullaby. You want me to sing? (laughs) There's something intensely personal about singing lullabies to your child. For me, it's a moment frozen in time where it's just me and my daughter or me and my son alone in the night. And it feels like a very human experience. But I'm wondering how long we've been singing lullabies and what they might mean across the world. To help me answer some of these questions, I'm joined by Emily Egan. She's a teaching artist at Carnegie Hall in New York City, and she's been helping new mums make their own lullabies as part of the Lullaby Project. Hi, Emily. How are you? Hi, Siobhan. Thank you so much for having me. I'm good. How are you? Good, thank you. Do we know how old lullabies are? That's a good question. There's, um, there is evidence of a lullaby that's about, it's from 2000 BC, from ancient Babylonia. Um, it's about uh, if the baby wakes up, the house god will get it. So it's this kind of ominous lullaby. <laughs> um, and there's other lullabies. Yeah, it's, it's in that tradition of lullabies. Um, but there's other lullabies that um, come from the medieval period. A lot of lullabies relate to the, to the birth of Jesus. So a lot of car- carols that double as lullabies. Um, oh, is that a thing? Carols that double as I'm just I'm surprised with that at that and kind of delighted as well because my daughter asked me to sing her Silent Night as a a lullaby and it's something that is now a a year long thing that we do. But it of course it's a Christmas carol. I can see that's a beautiful lullaby. That would be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> no. yes, there's, there's a lot of. It's interesting. There's a lot of lullabies that kind of treat the child the way that baby Jesus was treated, you know, as a beautiful, cherished child that they want to have a peaceful slumber. So um, it's a nice it's a nice set of themes in that there's lots of lullabies about angels watching over your head and things like that. So that's in that carol tradition. Now, um, I did mention in the introduction that you work with new mums making their own lullabies as part of the Lullaby Project. Um, so there you're talking about really new lullabies, ones that have never been sung before. Um, can you Right. But and I'm finding it interesting that as you say, way back when, when the world was very different, the lyrics of some lullabies were actually quite dark and frightening. You only have to think about Rockabye Baby to think think, oh right. <clears throat> that's not very nice. And now today, what kind of things are we singing to our kids and why do you think that's changed? Well, it's interesting because in the Lullaby Project at Carnegie Hall, we we sit down with the mother and we often ask um, very specific questions about their hopes and dreams for their child. And that's usually the start of the lullaby. So the lullabies that we write tend to have a very positive spin and they kind of double as go-to-sleep lullabies and lifelong wishes and dreams lullabies. So there'll be often a lot of lines that will talk about the beautiful sleep that you're going to have and, and there you're going to dream about your future. So that's a that's a theme that we have in a lot of Carnegie lullabies. I, I don't think I've come across yet a lullaby that has some, a theme like, you know, if you don't go to sleep, a dog will bite you or a crab will get you, which we see a lot in more folkloric lullabies. And actually one, I remember a mother, we were talking about Rockabye Baby in one lullaby writing session and she said, my mother always used to sing, and down will come baby peaceful and calm. 
Oh. So, yeah, a nice way to rewrite Bakabai Baby. But there's very rich content in the lullabies that the participants write, and that's what actually got me interested in the history of lullabies. I thought, what is, where are these things coming from, and what's, is there precedence for this, and how do these relate to other lullabies? What can we learn from lullabies around the world? As an artist, it's nice for me to have a little bit of inspiration from songs that you would hear from different places in different times. So in that work where you're um, encouraging that positive action for the mothers, the f- idea of singing to the children about their future, for example. Do you see that in the lullabies that you looked at, that in historical lullabies, that while they might have been singing about the house god that was going to come and get them if they cried, um, was, were they also seen as um, instructional, for want of a better word? Mm, that's a really good question. There's there's a beautiful tradition of lullabies that talk about um, when you grow up, you might be king, for example. Um, there's beautiful Sephardic lullabies that say, duerme, duerme, go to sleep, and when you wake up, you may be, you'll learn the law, and you might become a, a leader of the people. Um, so aspirational lullabies like that are the Skyboat song. I don't know if you know that the Scottish lullaby is... Um, sung to babies, but it's about the idea that a baby who's been taken away will come back and save our people. So beautiful lullabies like that. Unfortunately, the the lullabies for boys in much older lullabies tend to be more positive than ones for girls. And there are plenty of lullabies where a mother singing to her daughter saying, when you grow up, you'll be sorrowful. Um, All these these hardships of life are going to come to you. So now let me hold you and let me keep you safe. So there's there's a bit of a difference there if, if you if you dig very far back. There seems to be a kind of sweet sadness in a lot of them too. Yeah, definitely. And, and I'm really interested in that part because I have two small children too and I, I feel the complexity of motherhood, you know, as I'm singing to my children and I think about, um, I, I really like that lullabies can have that kind of a, um, a complicated edge, you know. And one of the people that we work with um, uh, w- w- talks about how lullabies really have an audience of two, the child and the mother. So you're singing for yourself as well as singing for your baby, and that's where some of that richness can come in, especially for your child can talk or, or understand what you're saying. You're alone and you're processing these feelings, and so you can, you can really speak your mind. And um, Denny Wolf is our, our colleague who writes a lot about this beautiful thing. And um, you, you said that um, we were speaking earlier over email and you mentioned that um, you mentioned the idea that lullabies are a kind of enhanced speech. Can you explain a little bit more about mm. that? Yeah, um, there's, there's really interesting more scientific studies that show that babies respond to what some people call motherese or that kind of, you know, talking like this and speaking to your child in that <laughs> lighter tone that's more legato. We all kind of know that voice and babies really do have a stronger response to that. Their cortisol levels go up and they, they, they're visually more attentive to that kind of speech. They also know when it's their mother as opposed to someone else. And they also know when you're, when you're really singing to a baby, not just um, singing for a recording, say they can tell the difference. So all of that is kind of in a little package saying that there's something about the mothering voice or the parenting voice that really comes through and, and connects with the baby. So 
Um, and that's in lullabies too. That the, so lullabies will have some of the same things that that kind of speech has, like a lot of falling intervals. Da 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 da. That kind of shape is what we when we speak as well. We tend to go down if we want to calm. So a lot of the the melodic shapes will have that. And there's a lot of space in lullabies. There's a lot of um, Rest. They're they're very respiratory. When you sing a lullaby, you can feel this kind of swaying back and forth shape, and that's attuning the baby to the mom. And and then the other thing that I really like about it is this um, idea in anthropology that what humans want to do is make things more special, and especially with a lullaby. And we see this all the time in Carnegie Hall that there's this wish to write a very very special, unique song for just your baby. And so when people are singing lullabies and they decorate it a little bit, they'll put some extra oohs or ahs in it, or they'll change the name to be the name of their baby or rhyme their child likes. Like that level of creativity is really loving and really part of parenting that you get to put yourself into the lullaby and, and make it so personal for your baby. You're listening to Kindling Conversation and I'm speaking with Emily Egan, who's a teaching artist at Carnegie Hall in New York City. And um, we've been talking about the history of lullabies, which I think is intricately related to also the social history of lullabies and what it means for us as human beings that we sing them. I've often wondered if people use lullabies to connect with their history, whether that's cultural mm-hmm. things like food and, and uh, religion and that sort of stuff, or even if it's just simply that it's connecting with their own mother or their grandmother. I mean, what do you think about that idea? Yeah, it's so fascinating because if you read about lullabies, you read about all the ways that language is embedded in lullabies like lullabies are filled with vowels and so if you're a baby listening to your parents saying you learn all the vowels of your language you know um they they really they're like a little introduction to the language world that you're entering and that you you're you're eager to be a part of it so it's this connective experience to start hearing your own language um but on a very personal level i think it's so fascinating when we go around in the Lullaby Project and ask people songs that they remember from their childhood being sung to them. Some of them are lullabies, technically. You know, they'll say, go to sleep on some level. And others are just family songs that meant a lot to someone in the family. They might be in a language that wasn't spoken so much, but the parents still remember, say, one song in a foreign language, and they want to keep that alive, um, or in two languages. And we end up writing a lot of languages, a lot of lullabies that are in, for example, Spanish and English. I think it's with that urge to keep all the different ways you can say the same thing going in a lullaby. Um, but then, and it's just so interesting, the songs that people remember their parents singing, a lot of times they don't, they're, they're silly or they're funny or there's something that's, that reveals something about that parent. The parent may not sing during the day or be particularly funny or storytelling, but at night in the dark, they can, they can show that side of themselves. So there's a lot of family connection that happens in a lullaby. Some of it's history and some of it's the personality, the people. It's really rich. It's a very rich moment. And it, uh, I think about um, part of my fascination with this is the fact that my mum used to sing a couple of lullabies that by the time I had kids, I'd forgotten them. But she started mm. singing them to my kids and I went and found the words and sang them to my kids as well. And oh, that's so nice. Yeah. Oh, what it were they? definitely teared me up the first time I saw her singing to her. Um, Morningtown Train was one uh-huh. and Christopher yeah, Robin. I love that. 
And Christopher Robin seems to be one that um, people know. And Morningtown Train, I didn't realise these, I think these must have been even popular songs when my mum had me. So it almost would be like someone singing a, I don't know, a, a soft Justin Timberlake song. I can't think of it, an artist, but you know, there might be a song that people listen to today. They sing to their kids that... I don't know. I mean, did you do you know right. much about Morningtown Train? Because I'm assuming it's that that's rock and roll and riding out along the bay. It's such a beautiful song, and I, I, it's funny. I remember that from a Sesame Street album when I was a kid, and I think it was already popular here. And then the Sesame Street made like a cover version of it. But um, that's such a beautiful lullaby, and that has all those rock and roll and riding. Is like it's the perfect. Sound, set of sounds to sing. I find that lullaby really soothing and beautiful. And you can put all the different children's names in it. I'm trying to remember some of the verses. You can put your children as the children ringing the bell or at the engine of this, this train that's going into the night. So that's really beautiful. Look, before I let you leave, I have to ask a personal question. I mean, do you have a, a song you say you, you've got young kids as well and that you like singing to them? Do you have a, a favorite song that you sing when you get they go to sleep? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. You know, it's funny from looking at lullaby history, I did get very interested in the idea of the lullabies where there's some kind of wild animal that's coming for you, you know, <laughs> and because um, and I just thought, what is that all about? Why are there lullabies like that? And I, and I tried a little song on my children and they loved it. And so it's the one that we sing every night. It's, um, it goes like this. It goes, great big dog came down the meadow. Wagged its tail and shook the meadow. Go away, dog. Go away, dog. You can't have my baby. Oh, that's so beautiful. It is beautiful. The words aren't that nice. Serious quality. Yeah. But you know what's funny? This is this just shows how like you have to see things from a child perspective. I was seeing hearing the song as scary, like, oh, there's a big dog coming. But I think what my children hear is, You can't have my baby. Like it's a song that makes them feel really protected and safe in a weird way because whatever animal we put in, you know, we sing great big chicken, great big cow, whatever, <laughs> they feel safe. So yeah, and we, we sing it together, the three of us sing it together now at night and it's it's just become one of our lullabies. Oh, that is such a beautiful story. Emily, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. I'm so delighted that you're interested in lullabies, and I'm really looking forward to hearing all of your podcasts about parenting. I'm, I'm glad to have found you. That's Emily Egan. She's a teaching artist at Carnegie Hall in New York City, and we will next week have an interview with Thomas Cabanis, who works with Emily on the Lullaby Project, and you can hear more detail about that amazing program. You've been listening to a Kindling Conversation podcast. We'd like to reach as many parents as possible, and you can help us by giving us a review wherever you downloaded this episode. It means that more people can find us. I'm Siobhan Hunt. See you next time.